Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, even to half, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And now go with me to chapter 9. I'm going to read the first ten verses of this chapter as well. Uh, this is after the, the, the plot has, has been exposed as we, as we read about, and, and now the rescue uh, begins. This is uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parjantatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arsai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Let's pray. Father, what a thrilling story we have before us. Uh, This uh, story of your people uh, gaining mastery over their enemies, over those who wanted to destroy them. But at the same time, we can see that this is a thrilling and an exciting story. And it sometimes seems so distant from us. It seems so strange. And uh, so we ask that you would bring us near uh, to these words. We come trusting that they are gifts from you, 
that you are speaking in and through these words, that your spirit is active as we gather in the name of Christ and read and hear uh, from your scriptures. And so would you give us the humility uh, to receive your word and not just understand it, but to receive it uh, as if our hearts uh, were a soft, fertile soil um, through which your word can produce uh, fruit to your glory. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this uh, summer, my wife and I had the great opportunity uh, to take a vacation together. And we went to the high country of North Carolina. And it was an amazing time. It was a great trip. And we would spend every morning out. And we would come home after our mornings out exhausted, tired. And we would rest the rest of the day. Now... Why were we so tired? Why were we so exhausted after our mornings out? Well, because we spent those mornings walking uphill. (laughs) We spent those mornings uh, fighting the opposition of gravity uh, to our goal of beautiful distance. See, opposition produces exhaustion. Opposition produces exhaustion. Exhaustion. Uh, That's why so many of you are so tired this morning. It's not just bad sleep habits, uh, though that's a contributing factor. It's not just the storm on Wednesday night that put kids in the beds of many of us, though that's a contributing factor. No, the reason we are so tired, the reason that we are so exhausted is that we live life walking uphill. We live with opposition. Most significantly, that gravitational pull that draws us away from God and the life that He designed for us. We live with opposition. We live walking uphill with a gravity that pulls us away from God. And for tired people... There is a beautiful phrase in the book of Esther that's repeated several times at the end of this book. It's in verse 16 of chapter 9. The the fighting that we read about spreads beyond the capital city. And the text tells us that Esther and Mordecai and their community, they got relief from their enemies. Relief is the word for rest. They faced exhausting opposition. And they found profound rest. Now, how can we get some of that? Don't you want some of that? Don't you want some of that rest? How can we find rest? Like the people of God find rest here in this book, in the book of Esther. Well, I want to address that question to uh, this book this morning, and we'll address it in two parts. We'll talk about the problem of exhaustion, the problem of opposition, and the solution of rest. The problem of exhausting opposition and the solution of rest. First of all, the problem. Remember, as I have said earlier in this series, the enemy that God's people face in the book of Esther comes from a very old rivalry. Haman was an Amalekite. And the Amalekites 
were the first people to attack Israel as they fled slavery in Egypt. And as I said earlier in this series, that antagonism, the antagonism of the Amalekites, wasn't just an animosity towards Israel, it was an an animosity towards God and towards His intention to bless all nations through His people, Israel. So Haman is continuing that animosity to God and His people. But it gets worse. Those names I stumbled through in chapter 9, the names of Haman's sons, you can actually find those names throughout uh, ancient Eastern religious texts. And they are names used for evil deities. They are names of demons in many of the ancient Eastern religions. The hint being, the storyteller is saying, that God's people face more than the animosity of the Amalekites. But in addition to that, they face a more powerful, sinister, spiritual enemy. But it gets worse than that. (laughs) You see, there is another important Old Testament story involving the Amalekites. You find it in 1 Samuel 15. And there God tells Saul, the first king of Israel, he tells him to go and deal with the Amalekites. He says, go deal with that enemy. Go defeat them and leave nothing behind and bring nothing home. Total destruction. Now that raises some questions for us, doesn't it? Just like the violence in the book of Esther raises some questions for us. At points in their history, in the Old Testament, God tells his people to make war with a kind of scorched earth policy. Total destruction. Leave nothing behind, bring nothing home. And I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions about that this morning. But let me say one thing. Whenever God tells his people to do that, his primary concern is idolatry. His primary concern is the worship of false gods. Their war was an expression of judgment on the worship of false gods. And it was the removal of temptation, the attraction to the worship of false gods. And so he tells his people, I don't even want you to take plunder from your battle because their wealth might lead you to their worship. His concern is idolatry, and so he says, Saul, go take, take, go take care of that enemy. And what does Saul do? He goes and he wins, but he comes home with something rather than nothing. He brings back with him plunder and the Amalekite king still alive. And as a result, God rejects Saul as king. But that's not all. That's not the only result of Saul's rebellion, of Saul's sin. You see, the Amalekite king that he brought home with him, that Amalekite king's name was Agag. How is Haman identified in the book of Esther? He's not just Haman the Amalekite. He is Haman the Agagite. You see, the storyteller here is connecting us to 1 Samuel 15. And and he's showing us that the people of God are still dealing 
with the effects of Saul's sin. Of Saul's unfaithfulness to the covenant that God had made with his people. And they are not only dealing with Saul's sin, they are dealing with their own sin. Because why are they in Persia in the first place? God had given them rest from their enemies through a better king, King David. But they had turned away from God to idolatry and the resulting immorality. And so he interrupted their rest and removed them from the land. And they end up in Persia in this very dangerous situation. The point is, enemies aren't just external. They're also internal. Animosity is not just from the outside. It is also from the inside. And here, once again, is where our situation is not the same as the people in Esther, but it does intersect with their situation. This cluster of enemies sounds very similar to the cluster of enemies that the New Testament describes. The New Testament says that Christians will face three groups of enemies. They will deal with the devil. Spiritual enemies like we talked about in the book of Ephesians. They will also deal with the world. Elements of human culture in opposition to God. And what's that third one? I can't. What's, what's, that? what's the third enemy we face? Oh, oh yeah, it's the flesh. It is our own desires and actions turned away from God and His will for us. You see, enemies aren't just external. They are internal. And rest will not be found without repentance. Rest will not be found unless we own our participation in the opposition to God and His ways. A few years ago, I was at my parents' house and the whole family was there and we were celebrating Christmas together. And my dad has a fire pit, and then he has an area of sand around that fire pit. And we were all sitting around the fire, and the kids were playing. And my youngest nephew began to run towards the fire. And he tripped, and he fell in the sand, not in the fire, but closer to the fire than was comfortable for us. And we all went, (gasps) and here's how he responded. He stood up and tears were running down his face and his face was beet red and he picked up a handful of sand and he threw it at me. (laughs) Because, Because he got up looking for someone to blame and I was closest to him. How often do we respond to the opposition in our lives that way? We get up Looking for someone to blame. Now this is not to deny the reality and pain of external enemies. We have all been harmed. We have all been sinned against in tragic ways in our lives. But our first question needs to be, how have I participated? How has my sin, how has my selfishness contributed to this problem? to this conflict, to this struggle. Listen, don't let your first response be looking for someone to blame. 
Let your first response be the humility to ask, how have I participated in the opposition to God and His ways? Because the enemies aren't just external. They are also internal. Now, in the immortal words of G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle, right? But it's only half the battle. Okay, knowing that we have enemies and knowing who those enemies are, even owning our own enemy nature, knowing is half the battle, but it's only half the battle. And in many ways, knowing that doesn't take away our exhaustion. It intensifies our exhaustion. And so we need to consider, secondly, not only the problem of exhausting opposition, but the solution of rest. How do God's people respond to their tiredness? How do they respond to their fatigue? Do they take a nap? No. And naps aren't bad things, but but God's people do not take a nap to deal with their fatigue. What do they do? They fight, right? And they fight in ways that overcome the failures of the past. Did you catch it there right at the end of our text in verse 10? It's a, it's a phrase that's repeated several times throughout these next two chapters. It says, they laid no hands on the plunder. Do you remember what King Saul did? He laid his hands on the plunder. These people, the people of God now as they fight against their enemies, they don't lay their hands on the plunder. Why are they able to fight in this way? Well, because of the partnership of Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai work within the Persian political system in order to produce a second edict in response to the first edict produced by Haman. So first edict, kill all the Jews. Second edict, Jewish people can defend themselves and y'all should help them defend themselves. Now, remember, Esther and Mordecai are cousins, right? There's a very interesting fact about their family history. Chapter 2 of Esther tells us that they descended from a man named Kish, who was the father of Saul. Kish was the father of King Saul. And so these descendants of King Saul are now overcoming this heritage of sin. They were overcoming this heritage of unfaithfulness to the covenant that God had made with them. But how are they able to do that? How are they able to fight in a way that overcomes the failures and sins of the past? Well, the answer is found in the fear that pervades these chapters. You hear that fear first in the voice of Haman's wife. You can hear her voice trembling as she says to Haman, Haman, if this enemy of yours, this rival of yours, if he belongs to the Jewish people, babe, you're done. And that fear continues with a refrain that we read and it continues throughout these chapters. It talks about fear falling on the people of the realm in response to Esther, Mordecai, and the people of God. Now that language, the language of fear falling, it comes from the Exodus narratives. As Israel marched towards the promised land, Scripture tells us that fear fell on the nations around them. 
Why did fear fall on those nations? Was it because of the size and the skill and the technology of the Israelite army? No, they were pretty terrible. They were not a good army. No, fear fell because God fought for them. Fear fell on the nations because God fought for His people. In the first skirmish with the Amalekites, this is in Exodus 17, the first fight with the Amalekites, the Israelite army is down in the trenches and they are making war. And where is their leader, Moses? Is he out in front of them as a general leading the charge? No. Moses, while they are fighting, he is up on a hill with his hands raised towards heaven. And as long as his hands are up, the Israelites win. When his hands are down, they lose. Up they win, down they lose. Why? Well, it's revealing who's really doing the fighting. Who's really making war? Not the Israelite warriors, but the divine warrior. And after they win the battle, Moses names the place with a phrase that means, The Lord is my banner. And he says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, He will make war on the Amalekites, on our enemies, forever which is what God does in the book of Esther. He makes war on the enemies of His people. You see, what Moses said all the way back in Exodus 17 was still true here in Esther. All of these many, many years later, the Lord was their banner. The reason that the second edict wins over the first edict is that there was a more ancient and powerful edict which said that God was with His people, that He would fight for His people. And that's why they get relief. That's why Esther and Mordecai and their community find rest from their enemies. And that's how we will find rest as well. That's where we will get relief. You see, the solution to exhausting opposition is the divine champion. You see, because Jesus came and He succeeded where Saul failed and He succeeded where we failed, Because Jesus was hung on the gallows that our sin deserved. Because Jesus rose and ascended victorious over the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Because of Him, the Lord is our banner. If we are in Him by faith, heaven makes war with inevitable victory. For our rescue. For our life. The edict of the gospel. The announcement of life. Shouts down every other edict spoken about us. Life screams at us death. Jesus shouts it down with life.
And that's where we'll find rest. That's where we will get relief. We are still called to fight. Jesus speaks with extreme and shocking language to talk about the aggression with which we should attack the sin in our lives. Paul calls us to a vigorous effort resisting our spiritual enemies, an effort that looks like a well-trained soldier or an Olympic athlete. We are still called to fight, not armed with physical weapons. Not attacking our human enemies. In fact, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, entrusting ourselves and them to the judgment of God. But we are called to war against sin and its impact in our life and world, armored with the gospel. Armored with God's righteousness and peace. Armored with his word and spirit. So effort, yes. But you know what? Our effort... It's like little kids trying to help. You see, when we move something around our house, our three-year-old, he wants to jump in and help. And that's a good thing. We want to encourage him to do that. That's a good thing to put forth effort. And he gets in there and he grunts as if he is bearing weight. But really, he's just in the way. (laughs) Faithful Christian effort. It's not in the way, but we don't bear the weight. We don't bear the weight Jesus does. He bears the weight and so come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And in him you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray.